food that you've enjoyed it. For those of you who are hungry, you can eat at your leisure later, both downstairs and upstairs. Um, so, tonight, uh, before I start anything, it's a special day for our founder, Jacques. It's his birthday, so I'd like you to put your hands together. newcomers, it's great to see you, and um, we've got some exciting things happening in the book club. We're going to be moving around Joburg to various venues. Uh, I know some of you are wondering why we're not still at Scoobs, but we made a, a decision to try and move it around a bit just to suit people in certain areas, and we may be moving to other places as well. So watch the space. Uh, there's a lot going on at the moment. Our website will be up and running officially very, very soon. And that's going to give you a whole lot of information. Uh, we've got video clips that you can tune into if you've missed any of the book clubs. So we're really out there working. Um, we've also collected to date 1,006 books this year. Last year we collected a total of 1,600. So we're one on target and hopefully we'll exceed last year's figures. On Facebook, we're up to 530-odd, 535 likes. We're really trying to build our social media. And thank you again to Bronwyn Hesketh, who's joined us from Cape Town. Bronwyn is our ambassador and will be opening up our Cape Town chapter on the 3rd of October. So we are moving with the book club. We will be launching on the 3rd of October at the library in Cape Town. Thank you to Bruce, our non-exec director, who's also here. And um, yeah, I think I've covered everybody. But more importantly, welcome Jeremy Max. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, you're a renowned person in your own right. I won't say any more. I'll leave that to Jacques. Over to you, Jacques. Thank you. <laughs> Jeremy, thank you so much for the introduction. Actually, by the way, I don't work. It's not work. It's, uh, you know, my, my daughter also, she, she came this morning, or this afternoon, she came to the office. And uh, she was so cute, she bought me a little carrot cake. Carrot cake's my favorite. Um, she said, Daddy, but you're still working. I said, no, darling. We call it a calling. It's not a work. Um, she said, oh, okay. Uh, and what's your calling going to be one day? So um, she's going to become a farmer. So she's already, she's decided what her calling is at the age of nine. Like, she's just there. But without further ado, um, I'd like to um, thanks, thank you, Jeremy, for, for, for joining us tonight. Um, Jeremy has written an amazing book called About Win. And um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was intrigued when I looked at the title and looked and wondered, but where does the title come from, Jeremy? Um, what, and, and what made you decide to write a book uh, about the South African context? Well, good evening, everybody. First of all, thank you so much for asking me. Um, before I answer the question, um, let me tell you that this book was not a calling. <laughs> <laughs> this book was the most difficult, bloody thing I've ever had to do in my whole life. It was a summons. It was one of those things. And I remember um, you, always, you always lie to your publisher, but what I didn't realize is your publisher always lies to you. So I always... They always build a lot of fat into the deadline, and 
I kept telling them that I was meeting the deadline when I was nowhere close to it, but they knew that I was lying. So we both in therapy for the whole thing. And uh, I, I just recall being in, uh, on holiday in Ireland, and um, I literally had 12 hours to deliver the last two chapters. I got up very, very early in the morning, then the internet wasn't working. She didn't buy that excuse, so it was very difficult. Why did I want to write a book called Work? Folks, I've had the most extraordinary life. I really am. I've been in journalism for uh, over 30 years. I started out in newspapers. I migrated to radio, and then for the last 10 years, I've been at ENCA as uh, an editor at large, but also as, uh, as a presenter on the program. And I've been very privileged to meet people who are true success heroes. And um, I know that you've all read the book, but if you haven't read a book, you better get one, okay. or you've read the cliff notes. But every single person that uh, features in this book, whether it's somebody like the inimitable Cheryl Carolus, um, arch-activist, former High Commissioner to, to London, or if it's someone like uh, Pravin Gordon, who I say has a backbone of tungsten, every single one of these people to a greater extent, not to a greater or lesser extent, but to a greater extent, have succeeded in this country. And I have one very simple quest. I firmly believe that we are a winning nation, in spite of the fact that we've gone into a technical recession, and in spite of the fact that there are all sorts of political and socio-economic uh, difficulties that we're dealing with in this country. I think we're coming through it, and I think that we have the potential to be a winning nation. Someone get that quickly. Um, <laughs> I think we have the potential to be a winning nation. And John, my principal remit here was every single person in this book is someone that I had encountered in my professional life. In other words, they had sat in front of me either in a radio, or a radio interview or a television interview. I knew they were winners. And what I wanted to do in this year-long quest was to find out exactly how they did. Okay, so so what Jeremy did very well is he's, he's taken 20 people um, and he's chosen them. And I, and I would like to know how you chose them because 20 is a, is, a, is a number, but I'm sure you've made more than 20. But what he's, what he's cleverly done is he's, he's ensured that he hasn't taken any political people. So there's, there's no, well, there's two in yet, Jeremy. I mean, you've got, you've got two in. But I mean, we won't blame him for for the two, it's Cheryl Carolus, and then the other one is, is like is like the father of the nation, almost like Praveen Gordon. Uh, you know, we had a bit of a conversation about it, and I, I, I think Praveen is more like, you know, the, the brother of, of Desmond Tutu, in terms of, you know, how, how we look up to them. But the question, Jeremy, is, is how did you how did you choose those those 20? Because they've got, um, you know, some of them are, are, are not just business people as such. You know, how, how, how do we get to, to the 20? I, I would love to say to you that there is an elegant answer to this. I came up with a list of about 60 people, and then I reached out to them, and these were the ones that kind of got back to me first. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but uh, these are the people that um, whose diary um, I could fit into and into, whose, into my diary. And we managed to we managed to coalesce in, in that particular respect. But I'm being a little self-deprecating here. What I tried to do was to find a group of people across the kind of pantheon of the socio-economic sphere that we live in in South Africa. I needed a couple of books 
I needed someone like a Cheryl Carolus or a Kevin Gordon or uh, an Adrian Gore or a Jabu Mabuza, people who are really larger-than-life characters. But I also wanted to mine down and find people uh, that were achieving success, maybe not on the macro scale that some of the people that I've just mentioned have achieved, but people who are doing amazing things, particularly in the business space and in the entrepreneurial space. And one of the favorite interviews that I have in this book is a guy called Ryan Bacher. Yeah. Ryan Bacher, for me in, in my life, is the most important person in the world. Let me tell you why. Uh, he is the founder and chief executive officer. Gentlemen, are you listening? Take notes. Be very, very cognizant of this on Ned Florist. <laughs> and the amazing thing about Ned Florist is they send you a reminder three or four days before your wife's birthday. So my wife was sitting in the back there, it's her birthday on Friday. I know this already, <laughs> because Ryan has sent me a reminder. But what Ryan has done is he has taken, it was a passion project, he understood um, that there was a huge gap in the market, in, in the florist market in South Africa. And essentially what he did was he created a single brand, but he created an experience, created convenience, all driven off the backbone of technology. For me, Jacques, he is one of the people that I think is, uh, is a huge success story in this country. Not only because he, not only because he has worked incredibly hard to do what he does, but you visit his premises uh, not too far from here in, in, in four ways. And on tough days, Valentine's Day, uh, Easter, he's down there with his people cutting and picking and packing flowers. And that to me is the mark of a true entrepreneur. Wow, Jenny, Jenny Darling and Dirty and not, not uh, managing from ivory towers Precisely. as they as they say. But Jeremy, you had a structure when you when you when you interview these individuals. Can you ask them specific questions? Um, please share with us, you know, how what questions you asked and, and why you chose those questions. That was the idea in theory, anyway. Yes. Um, the, the idea in theory was that I was going to have 20 set questions and uh, very basic and obvious questions because I want this book and it was important for me to have this book as a primer for people who are starting out in business. We all know, and it was endorsed by President Ramaphosa this afternoon speaking in China, that the future of this country is SMEs. We, we, we're not going to succeed in this small businesses as difficult as it is for them to do right now. But I wanted this book to be accessible to those people who are starting out in business wherever they are in South Africa. And I remember talking to the publisher and I said to them, in an ideal world, I don't want this book to sell at exclusive books. I would rather this book sell at the hyper market, where people are going to pick it up and they're going to use it and they're going to make notes in it and they're going to learn from it. I'm pleased to say it is selling at exclusive books. That was a rather silly thing to say. <laughs> but having said that, I came up with this list of 20 questions. And the way, I uh, the way which I envisaged it originally was that I would ask each person the same question and then it would almost be done in a notation form in the book. 
But I said to you at the very beginning, I, I've been in journalism for 32 years, and journalists suffer from extreme attention deficit disorder. Um, and the other thing is we, we, we simply cannot stick to the rules. And because I'm a professional interviewer, it, it's what I do every day, what we train to do is that you refer to the questions that you've got, that the best stuff comes, not out of the answers, but it's listening to the answer and pushing and probing a little further. That's exactly what I did with these interviews. So eventually, I did what I should have done in the very beginning. It simply became a conversation. Doc, if you ask me what the 20 questions were that I had in the very beginning, I literally couldn't tell you because I can't remember. <laughs> okay, but I do. Because <laughs> I, I, I did actually read your book. Yeah. Um, and, and what I what I, what I, I mean, Well, that makes one of us. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, there was one question that was a theme that I really enjoyed, and, and I enjoy that because of various reasons. One of them particularly being, I work in that space of SMEs, and I've got one of my clients sitting here, and we did this exercise, that question you asked, we did the exercise quite recently, which you'll remember, is where you, where, you, where, you, where you ask the question of writing your obituary, or you know, what do you want your, your, the legacy. your name? Exactly. So the legacy question is being asked here, and it's fascinating to hear what these guys are saying. So if you were wondering whether you should buy this book or not, don't wonder anymore, because it's all about the end game. I think sometimes we forget about the end game. Um, you know, it's something that we don't talk about, but we, 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 we push it to the side, and we say, oh, I'm going to live for today, I'm not going to go to the end game. But the end game is quite an important question to cultivate in your own mind, so that you, you've got something to, to work towards. No, okay. I think in retrospect, the legacy question, I wasn't happy with it at the end. And it was Adrian Gore, the Chief Executive Officer of Discovery, uh, and I think Rule Corso, who used to run, uh, used to be chairperson of the NetBank, who said that often we focus too much on the legacy. And we're looking about how we're going to be remembered and what we're going to do. And we're so focused on something which is essentially driven by ego that we're not focusing, as you put it, getting our hands dirty, doing what we should be doing in the here and now. Having said that, um, I think human beings are, are creatures who crave recognition. I think we are people that want to be uh, acknowledged for the work that we're doing. And I think the older uh, we get, um, and you've just turned a year older, so you'll be very sympathetic to us. I think the older we get, we do start thinking about our legacy. In my own particular case, as I said to you, I've had a, a rich and varied and astonishing career in journalism. I've traveled, I've met amazing people. But you do reach a point in your life where you start thinking, you question your, your contribution, you think to yourself, could I have done more? Um, and it's, that's the point where I think we start to become a little bit more uh, cognizant of the fact that we need to contribute a little bit more to the work that we're doing, to the community that we're living in, uh, and which is why I really salute what you're doing, for instance, uh, with the book outreach program. I've really said to Jacques, I, I have, I'm not actually going to do it. My wife's going to do it. Um, <laughs> we, 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 live in a, we don't live in a home. We live in a library because we are inveterate book readers. We've got so many business books at home. They're yours now. And I think that's part of your legacy. And I think that we all start thinking in that respect. But what I would caution all of you to do, and I see some people who are 
older than others, don't become fixated on the legacy because you lose touch with the here and now, yes, which is yes, wonderful. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I guess, and I, and I guess the, the point is really is to, is to have the legacy, but then move on and live for today. You know, get your hands dirty, go and, down. And let, others def and, and let others define the legacy for you. Don't be Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> You, you spoke here about Adrian Gore, uh, and Adrian Gore is quite a, it's quite a fascinating, I mean there was, there, was, there was one of the stories in here which I thought was quite um, extremely fascinating about the age his wife was when she um, got her, her, her child, I mean that was, a, well, they, yeah, they, that was fascinating. Uh, 50 years old, um, which is uh, you know, good luck Mrs. Gore, right, as far as that one's concerned. Adrian Gore is, is I, I, I say in the book that I do not believe he is from planet Earth. Um, I, I think that he is a, a, a superannuated species who have come to this planet to kind of look at us to see how we operate so badly. Uh, he is a veritable machine. Let me tell you a couple of things about him and why he's a winner. Um, the first thing is, he, when, when we did the interview um, in his office, he, he keeps time very punctually, but like Elon Musk, who I think um, had been trying to get Elon Musk, he said no. So I'm not going to have him on my TV show. <laughs> um, Adrian runs his life in 20 or 25 minute increments. He wakes up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I know when many of you are getting back from a function like this. Um, and his life is punctuated by espresso coffee and exercise. So just before he joined us uh, to do the interview, he came down and he was buttoning up his, his sleeves. And he said, oh, I've, I've just done my pre-lunch 50 push-ups. So I slapped him because I really, it's really <laughs> uh, The thing with Adrian is he is absolutely driven by a fear of mediocrity. What is mediocrity? If you read the book, you'll find out it's getting home at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He says it's having the dog bring you the newspaper and living behind the picket fence. Uh, he is constantly searching and challenging new things. There's a concurrent theme in this book uh, with all the people. There is, they make space for two things, Jacques. They make space to read, and particularly back to Pravin Gordon, he is a, an inveterate reader of everything. Uh, he cuts things out, people send him clippings. He will look at something on mollusks, which have been featured in National Geographic, to an article in vanity fair about a celebrity, but he is perpetually and constantly reading. I would suggest that all of us sitting in this room have lost our ability to read. Somebody asked me the other day, what book are you reading? And as I said to you, we live in a library, but I don't have a book next to my bedside table anymore because I'm so fixated by the 140 characters on Twitter that I think we've lost our ability to read. All the people in this book, every single one of them, they read all the time. That's the one thing. The second thing is, and it was one of the people that reminded me of something that a previous boss had said to me when I was working as head of news at 702. Um, I was sitting one day frantically in, in, in my office working on a budget or rosters or whatever the case was, and he came in. Michael Peter McClary, and he used to run Tiger Brands, pre-stereosis. And um, he, uh, he came in and he said to me, what are you doing? I said, oh, Peter, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you now. 
and it is done. He said, I also pay you to look out the window. Yes. And I didn't understand because I was young and ambitious and kind of in my late 20s, but like you are just kidding. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and what I realized he was saying to me is I pay you to think. And I think in this crazy world that we live in at the moment, where our biggest enemy is time, the biggest deficit we have in our lives is finding time. I don't think we think enough. And every single one of these people, in, to a greater or lesser extent, said they spend time looking out the window. I would suggest, folks, that all of us collectively make some kind of commitment to doing that again, because when you look out the window, you're developing strategy, you're developing ideas, you're looking at better ways of executing those ideas. Because if we don't do that, uh, we're just wheel spinning. Isn't that amazing? I mean, there's so many nuggets in this book. I mean, you, you know, autobiographies are usually uh, a, a very good type of book to read. Yeah, you get all of it in one. You get you have 20 autobiographies about their, their, their nuggets. So, if you haven't got a bedside book at the moment, we really suggest that you know there's one at the back there for you. Um, and if you also forgot to bring a book to donate, that's absolutely fine. Uh, there's a book out there that you can also buy, you just put that in the box, and that will go, go to the library. Because you know we don't ask, we don't ask any entrance fees uh, for the Business Book Club, but we love to receive a book um, that we then that we hand over to, to our um, approved libraries. Um, Jeremy, but, but there's, a, there's another guy in here, we'll, we'll open the, the, the floor for questions after this, but there's another guy in here that was fascinating for me, one, one because I've heard it before, and the other one is he's not a businessman, well, in the true sense of the word, he's emptiness. I mean, what an amazing man he is. Um, and what you've just done, as you've mentioned Imtiaz Suleiman, I have just opened to that chapter sure. because we, I don't know what that is, that's just weird. Okay? <laughs> but um, I also, I don't think we can have this conversation without yes. talking about the founder of the gift of the givers. A absolutely. But I mean, that guy, I mean, you, you, you're talking about Adrian being a machine, but this guy, I mean, his, his conviction about what he does and the reason he does it, it just surpasses what I've ever seen or heard before. I mean, what is it you sit like in, across him and interviewing him? He must have some sort of a, I don't know, an energy field around him. <laughs> Let me tell you exactly what it's like sitting opposite him. It's noisy, uh, it's smelly, and it's dirty. And he would be delighted if I said that. I'll tell you why it's noisy. Because he operates from a huge warehouse in Kew in Johannesburg, where he has Pantechnican trucks constantly being loaded with food because it's not only the big earthquakes and the tsunamis and the war in Syria that his organization helps with. Every single day, and I can't remember the exact figure, something in the region of between two and three thousand people a day they are feeding. And the interview is punctuated all the time by these Pantechnicans rolling in and rolling out. It's smelly because there's diesel in your face the whole time as you're talking to him. And it's disconnected and it's disjunctured because he also suffers from attention deficit disorder because he 
carries two cell phones around the <coughs> and he's constantly talking to people and marshalling people. But he is the most amazing person and someone that I think is, I think he's recognized, but possibly under-recognized uh, in this country. I think there's a future government for someone like him. His start in life was astonishing. He uh, is a medical doctor. Um, he went to a, he went on a trip to Turkey and he met uh, a, a guru or a religious leader. And he sat down and this person said to him, you will found, find or found an organization called Gift of the Givers and for the rest of your life, you will dedicate yourself to helping the underprivileged. And with absolute conviction in his heart, he did that. What he has done is he has moved the world. A lot of what he's done has been replicated in other countries, but not with as much success. And I've referred to three things, because every chapter in this book has what we call takeaways. Just three little notes on people uh, and what has made them success. The first thing is, I don't think any of us in this room can truly say that we're happy. I think we live in various degrees of contentment. Sometimes we're happier than other days. But South Africa, and I think Johannesburg particularly, they're not always a happy place. And I know I speak on behalf of all of you. Imtiaz Suleiman says, success is a state of contentment and inner well-being. Every single day, folks, he tries, through his religion, he's a devout Muslim, but every single day he tries to find that inner well-being and contentment. It's difficult to do. I've tried, I know that you will try as well. Try harder, I'm trying harder to do that. The other thing is, which really kind of rocked my world a little bit, successful people need to remember that they're dealing with people and not buildings. Let me say that again. Successful people need to remember they're dealing with people and not buildings. It's a deep statement. I'm not gonna say any more about that, okay? And what we should also do is that we chase big success in our lives, whether it be money, or whether it be the acquisition of property, or whether it be uh, you know, whatever your def definition of success is. And sometimes, he says, the biggest success is found in a small sliver of light. It's that one joyous thing that happens to you in a day. And look back on your day today, everybody. I'm sure at some point, Something small happened to us that made us joyful, that gave us that inner contentment. That junk is also a definition of success. Oh. Amazing. So, I mean, Jeremy just gave you like three nuggets uh, from one guy. So, what you could do is, I mean, if you could actually read a chapter of this book every, every, every day, you'll finish it in 20 days, and you'll have like a bit of inspiration for your day. Um, what these guys do and, and, and how they, they manage success. Any questions from the audience uh, for Jeremy regarding win, success, or absolutely anything else? Any questions? I'm assuming you haven't read the book then. <laughs> Ian, a question from you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> John, question for you. Well, I haven't read the book, but what has made you a winner? I mean, what has defined you as a winner? Well, I think 
find you. So what is what is uh, so the question is what is defining Jeremy as a winner? So thank you for that. Those are the um, I don't consider myself to be a winner, and I write very clearly in this book that if I strip my kind of bare skills down, um, I have been a journalist. I'm a teller of stories. I, I tell stories about other successful people. Yeah, I'm lucky. I have achieved a fair degree, I've had a fair degree of luck in my life. I think it's about being in the right place at the right time and maybe seeing the forthcoming wave. I was in newspapers uh, for a long time and I realized way back when I was working in, uh, in the Eastern Cape during the height of the, uh, the, 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 the pre-change violence, 1985, 1986, that newspapers were not the medium of the future. I don't know why I knew that, I just did. And I jumped to radio. And at some point I realized in the radio work I was doing that this wasn't as fulfilling as I hoped. And I looked for the next big thing. And maybe if, if I were to, and I say in the book that if success is a ladder against a wall, I'm certainly not going to be that self-deprecating say that I am not successful, but there's a lot more success I think I could have achieved in my life. I'm kind of halfway up the ladder. Um, I think I'm also coming to the end of my professional career at this point, and I'm happy where I am. But I think the one thing that I've learned in my life is to embrace a little bit of risk and to also look for the next thing all the time. So, so many of us are caught up in a rut in our lives and we're afraid to make change. Um, I've not really been afraid to do that. Sometimes to the chagrin of my wife who has questioned my decision to leave jobs and to start new things, but I, I think I've succeeded in that respect. I think it's important. One of the people that isn't in this book is a very good friend of mine who is the uh, was the marketing director for AD, AD uh, InBev, a guy called Steve Miller well-known in the marketing fraternity. And Steve used to say to me that you should never work in a job for longer than five years because they'll get bored with you and you'll get bored with them. He's lived by that dictum all his life. I failed to do that. I've been at the television channel now for uh, 10 years. People are starting to call me Tata Jeremy, which worries me. <laughs> but the reality of the situation is that I think if I were to strip down what has made me win to a certain extent, I think it's that opportunity to see the next thing and to grab it. Um, maybe that fades with age a little bit, I don't know, but um, I would urge all of you, uh, who certainly are younger than I am, to look for that next opportunity. Jump in sometimes. You can never be 100% sure about a decision. If you're 80% sure, do it. Any other questions? Yes, Greg. Um, Jeremy, I haven't read your book either, but you... Well, thanks, Greg. Jeremy, you've obviously interviewed a whole bunch of really successful people who you consider to be winners, but they, they do seem to be quite eccentric people in their own way. Um, did you ever get it just that they were able to take that eccentricity or that winning and apply it to the people around them? I, I know has built up this big business, etc. 
how easy in your eyes is it for the people that you interviewed to actually put across the success stories that they've got mm. to mm. be able to to be able to, to get yeah. a feeling that they were alone or not? It's a very good question. So, so how do they how do they multiply? Is that what you're asking? So how do they multiply the winning the winning formula? If there's a formula, Jeremy. I literally don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I really don't. There is a formula for success. Um, I'll find it for you. Yes, I will. <laughs> if you go to Vinnie Lingham, who yeah. is a tech entrepreneur, if you'll just find it, I actually cannot get a formula yeah. for success. More pages of them? Uh, 98. Page 98. I'm, I'm thinking about your, your question because I think it's a very good one. Maybe, this is a very good technique. Yeah, may, may, maybe if there's a follow-up book to this, it's not going to be a follow-up book. I'll tell you what I'm interested in <laughs> while I'm padding here furiously. Okay? Uh, is um, I think one of the things that is undervalued in this country is wisdom. Um, I think that there are so many um, silverbacks in this country, and I think that often we shunt them to the margins. I'm toying uh, with the second book, uh, which I want to call Wise. Um, I, want, I want to find 20 wise people. Notice I don't say 20 wise men. <laughs> 20, uh, I, want tw I have a millennial daughter who will kill me. Um, 20 wise people, and I think that uh, there are lessons to be learned from wisdom in this country. Um, I'm still thinking about the passing on the eccentricity. Vinnie Lingham is, is the most extraordinary person. He, he, he's into Bitcoin and technology, and most of the time when I was speaking to him via Skype in San Francisco, I, I had no idea what, what he was talking about. But there is a formula if you're interested. It's, it's, I actually wrote it down. It's, it's, it's P plus O uh, plus I equals S. <laughs> and this is how it goes. It's persistence. Every single one of these people persevere. And I know it's an old cliche, but people um, people say, oh, well, you know, I learn from all my mistakes. But it's true. Okay? So they're persistent. All of these people have failed in one way or another. The se second thing is, and you're talking often to the Grinch who stole Christmas here. I'm not a particularly optimistic person. I think driven by my career. Um, I, my job is a purveyor of bad news. Um, it's an awful thing to say, but a good day at the office for me as a newscaster is a plane crash. Okay? It's just it's the way in which my world works. Um, all of these people have had, uh, and I think that rubs off on you. I, I think eventually it starts to kind of erode your soul a little bit. But all of these people here, often through very adverse circumstances, financial hardship, family hardship, personal loss, the list goes on and on, have been able to show a degree of optimism. So P plus O, okay. The second thing is insight. Every single one of these people had an insight into what they wanted to do, but also how they wanted to do it and what the either the unique shortcut was going to be or the longer term strategy, but they had an insight and they were able to act on that. And if you can coalesce persistence, optimism, and insight into S, which is success, I think that that is the winning formula. Um, I also needed to fill a page, so maybe that's not the winning formula, I don't know. To your eccentricity question, it's a good question. Um, not all of them have been able to do that. So I'm assuming that what you're asking me is, you know, have they been able to articulate their own message successfully to others to imbue a spirit of success within their organization? I would love to say to you that every single one of these people are successful communicators. It's not true. 
Um, I don't think you have to be a great orator uh, to, be a, to be a great leader or to be a successful person. All of them, though, have had a steadfast vision about what their short-term, long-term end goal is, if you understand, because the environment changes all the time. They're, they're not setting long horizons, but they are seeing a horizon. And what they're able to do, and this is the important word, they have a conviction about what they're doing. And the conviction, I think, is they're able to articulate that conviction to people. Not in great audiences of people, often it's a one-on-one -on -one negotiation. One of the other people that I interview in this book is a, a, a friend of mine who runs a very successful uh, media company, uh, MSG Media, his name is Gavin Makari, uh, Power 98.7 uh, is the radio station. I worked on it uh, two years ago um, before just the pressure has gone too much for me. And there's a charisma that he has. And I, I'm not going to get into uh, the highly publicized issue around his domestic situation, which you either know about or you don't know about, which kind of runs counter to what I wrote in the book. Google it if you're interested. But what he's got is he has a light in his eyes and he lights up a room. And people in the media industry talk about sipping Givens Kool-Aid. That's absolutely true. He just has that indefinable quality to make people want to follow him and to believe. Other people in years gone by have referred to something called the Kennedy Charisma. That's the, it's the charisma that John F. Kennedy had and the rest of his family. It's an indefinable, intangible quality, but I'll tell you right now, Greg, you'll know it when you see it, and often you will walk in that person's path. But to try and define it is, it's, it's, like, it's like mercury. You, you, you cannot actually put it down. So you're actually touching now on something that I was wondering about is, you know, when, when Jim Collins wrote the book Good to Great, uh, it was a lot of research and, and whatever that he, that he had to put in it. But then when the crash came of 2008, he sort of had to, you know, he, he made a follow-up of why the mighty fall, you know, so why some of those good to great companies um, ended up not being so good to great. And I guess my question was, you know, after you've written the book, is there any of these individuals that you would say, you know, might not have lived up to the standard of when you interviewed them? Um, and, and having displayed that, you know, in other words, they verbally said, we are, you know, they told you the story, and then when afterwards you went like, nah, maybe that's not, not part of it. Yeah, I mean, I, th I, think, Jack, I think I know what you're saying. Uh, look, I mean, since the book was written, um, you know, Mark Lamberti, for instance, uh, you know, he, he was involved in uh, an issue uh, in, in, in the Imperial Group, which involved uh, uh, discrimination against a female staff employee, the person left, I think she was reinstated, and he fell on his sword as far as that was concerned. It's not a good thing. It was good that he fell on his sword. What he did, uh, particularly in this era of trying to achieve gender parity, was a bad thing. It, um, we were all, people were critical of it. I've already re referenced uh, Given Makari. Uh, what has happened to Given has been well publicized in the newspapers. So, yeah, I mean, some of the people, I guess, subsequent to the book have not lived up to those high expectations that I had. But I come back at you and I say to you that um, there's a fallibility that exists in all of us. Every single one of these people here are not perfect. Yeah. They've all made mistakes. They will continue to make mistakes. 
you can be a winner and you can still be imperfect in my opinion. Every single one of us in this room today have made a mistake. I've made many mistakes, most of them spelling. Okay? Um, and um, we've just got to learn to live with that. And I think infallibility and I think imperfection often makes for a better person in trying to achieve that goal for me. Yeah, sometimes about the question, you know, should we meet our heroes? You know, sometimes it's better not to not to meet them. Um, any other questions from the audience? Nikki, I saw you had one for us. Why? Let me explain why. 
Gossip is the unspoken or the unformulated narrative of society. It's what people are whispering. It's what people are saying. It's the conversation that you and I and Bruce were having about a certain well-known individual who might or might not be testifying before Parliamentary's Finance Committee this week, who might have run a company with German links. You know who I'm talking about, if you don't, shame on you. <laughs> what we were doing, what the three of us were doing, in the nicest possible way, we were having a bit of a gloss about the whole thing. You picked some stuff up from me, I picked some stuff up from you. And I think it's important that we also plug into society in that way. I think in my profession particularly, what's the gossip? I often ask my young reporters, I'll go talk to them, I'll say, guys, what's happening? What's the gossip? And I'm not only talking about what's happening in the broader political space, I'm talking about the friggin' newsroom as well, okay? You need to know what's happening. It's back to curiosity. All of these people, folks, to a greater or lesser extent, are curious. So, and thanks for listening to the radio program. It used to kill me getting up that time of the morning. <laughs> Another question, Bruce. Um, Jerry, who was number 21 on your list? Of, uh, <laughs> 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 who was number 21 on your list? Uh, it would have been uh, 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 another sports person. So I had two. Um, I had Brian Habana, uh, the rugby player. Um, I had Vic Vermeulen. If you're interested, I'll tell you the Vic Vermeulen story. Um, I think it possibly could have been Lucas Khadebe. Um, I mean, there was a, I mean, there, there, there was a list. Um, I think he's achieved enormous success. Um, the, the other thing is I didn't have enough females in this book. Um, I have a, I have a, yeah, I, I said it. I'm not buying it anymore, you know, so. yeah, <laughs> We'll give you a very good discount. We'll give you, we'll give you the gender discount. Yeah, it was pointed out to me. Um, it, it wasn't by design, it, as I said to you right at the very beginning, it was about availability, but I, I do regret that. Uh, there should have been more parity in that respect. So, number 21 probably would have been a successful female. Um, <coughs> But I'm not sure. Brian Abana was an interesting one because I looked at him. How did you meet? How did you meet Brian? So Brian Brian Habana is uh, he is. Does everyone know who Brian Habana is? Shame on you. you know. <laughs> uh, he, I mean, he is just the most phenomenal sports person. I met Brian um, when he came into ENCA just as he was starting to become famous. And I, 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 he was booked to do an interview with me. And I was, I, I'm not a huge sports fan, uh, but I, you know, I, 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 I like to watch the big ones, as we all do. And I was very excited about meeting Brian Havana. And what really amazed me was that he was more excited about meeting me because as a youngster, he'd watched a television quiz program that I did many years ago when I gave vast amounts of money away to people who were able to answer some very easy questions. Um, and um, this had kind of formatted a lot of his kind of general knowledge and interest. So we formed this mutual admiration society. 
the thing that Brian said to me, which was important, is um, understand your own professional fallibility. He is clever enough to realize that while he has been successful uh, professionally and obviously financially as a, as a, as a top flight rugby player, it's not going to last. So he's been very clever in furthering his business education and making sure that the contacts and the networks that he develops are beyond the scope of rugby. And there I thought to myself as a young man who is really thinking ahead, I think that's important. It's about self-strategizing. You had a question for us. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? Um, Jeremy, I have to ask you, I've been very lucky to spend some time with you at Masterclass in Cape Town, and then obviously tonight. I listened to you speak, you were incredibly inspirational. I'd like to know, who was your mentor when you were younger? Good question. Who was your mentor when you were younger, Jeremy? Can you remember? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. What I wish I had found one person uh, who perhaps been more of a guiding light in my life. Um, I had a very close relationship with my parents. My mom died earlier this year. God bless her, she was 91 years old. My dad is still alive at 94. They weren't mentors in my life. Um, they, were, they, were, they were distracted. Um, they, were, uh, they, were, they, they loved their sons, but they were not particularly interested in the paths that we follow, which I actually think is a type of mentorship anyway. It's kind of you know, get on with your life, which I think is a good thing. Um, if I look back, um, I, I'm not going to name people specifically, but what I've always done uh, is I have sought out people who I respect, and I haven't gone up to them, and I haven't said to them, will you be my mentor? What I've tried to do, particularly in my formative years in radio and newspapers, I would find people who I respected, and I would try to latch onto them professionally for as long as I could until I became a complete hindrance. Um, that started to happen to me now, particularly in my workspace. Um, and there's a good lesson here because we all of a similar age, I'm younger than most of you, but I don't know yourself. Um, but a lot of people coming up to me now and saying, you know, will you be my mentor? And I'm very happy to do that. But if people are asking you to do that, folks, my suggestion to you is that it's up to the mentee to manage the mentor. I've said to them, I'm very happy to help you, but seek me out. I am not going to manage this relationship. If you want to have a conversation, that's fine. If you never want to have one again, that's fine. If you want to have a weekly conversation, that's fine. If you want to draw goals and, and, and all of that thing, do it. I'm not going to do it for you. But I also think that the one thing that all of us in a professional environment in South Africa owe to, a, to, to an emerging, young, disaffected, often very angry population, I think we owe that uh, benefit of wisdom and experience. And it's back to that, 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 uh, that, that second title, I never get my act together. I think we need to use and harness our collective wisdom as people to help others. Um, I still can't think of one person who's a mentor, but I'm sorry. I'm sure they're very hurt. <laughs> Jeremy, as you, as you interviewed all the individuals in this book, I, I mean, this is probably a bit of an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it in any event. Is which one did you go back and you said, 
Sure, that was really something that I didn't know and, and it actually led to you maybe doing something different about where you are and, and, and how you operate on a daily basis. First of all, there's no such a thing as an unfair question. I've built a career on asking unfair questions. Um, and um, the technique, by the way, if you want to ask an unfair question in a, in a TV interview, uh, it's always leading in, by the way. Okay? <laughs> you, just, you just scare the crap out of them, which is important. Folks, uh, the person that um, impacted on me most, um, and it's the last chapter in the book, the guy called Vic Vermeulen. Do you know his story? Yeah. Okay, so Vic Vermeulen, um, was uh, born in the era of, um, or practiced in the era of Sean Pollock um, as, a, as a cricketer. Uh, he could have been a, uh, he could have been one of the world's most successful cricketers, but for a terrible accident. Um, dived into a swimming pool. Uh, he, he admits, uh, well, he doesn't admit, but there's an indication that you know, he'd been partying too hard with a group of his friends sank to the bottom, hit his head, they pulled him out. When he came to in hospital, he was a quadriplegic. Um, adding uh, more woe to that story is a year earlier, his father had been killed in a home invasion. So here's a guy that uh, was well entitled in my life to shout at the heavens and to be angry at God or whoever he believed in. And I had met him peripherally once before, and um, I was very keen to include him in the book because he has made a huge success out of being a motivational speaker. He also has a wicked sense of humor and he mouthpins and sells his paintings for an enormous amount of money. Um, I went to do the interview with Vic um, because I wanted to poke holes in his optimism. Um, I could not believe that a person who had been dealt such a cruel blow in his life could be so perpetually and annoyingly confident, upbeat, and optimistic. I, I just did not believe it. And I tried for a good two hours as we had this conversation uh, to try and outbox him. And that was the thing. He knew what I was doing. He told me afterwards. I couldn't find, I could not punch a hole in his argument at all. He genuinely is thankful for what has happened to him. He's been a quadriplegic now longer than he was when he was mobile. He leads the most astonishing life with a mother who is a saint. Um, she is in her 80s now. Um, she looks after him with a carer. Um, and every two hours she gets up with the carer, they have to turn him every single night. And uh, he is active. He tells the most appallingly dirty jokes. Um, and he says, and again, referring you to the takeaways here, success is not about dwelling in the past, but looking ahead to what is next. And I think that is the most valuable lesson that I took out of this entire book. Um, my friends and family will attest often that I'm, I'm, I can, I'm a miserable person uh, most of the time. Um, and uh, I tend to dwell on the negative and what's wrong and you know what the problems are. And every time since this book was written, I start to feel that way, um, I think of Vic Vermeulen. And it's not about dwelling in the past. It's not about looking forward 
the future. It's living in the absolute here and now, the moment of that you and I are in now. Mm. It's providing us, at least I hope I'm not boring you, but it's providing us with a degree of contentment and enjoyment. I hope that you're enjoying the discourse. Let's live in the moment. That's what this young man does. I think you're only allowed to ask one or two. <laughs> His name is Jacques. I mean, it's a great name. Okay. So, it's possibly not in the book, but the cautionary tale to all books like this is that most of us don't get where we get to because of our own ingenuity. We get to because we've been given a hand up, we've had a lucky break. As Nassim Tlaib says, the, uh, the economist, the Lebanese economist, there's, a, there's definitely an element of randomness in all of our success. So most, these people, I mean, it's maybe not in the book, but did you find them humble? Or did you find them arrogant and think they were self-made? Or did they, did they admit that, hey, they've got a couple of lucky breaks? Right, so the question was, you know, were they humble or were they a bit arrogant? Both, to be honest with you. Um, Adrian Gore admits he has a huge ego. Okay, it's fine. Um, let me tell you a couple of things that I learned in that respect. Um, most of them are, are humble. All of them have had a leg up in one way or another. Not necessarily a financial leg up. It could be a wise father. It could be a single mother. Uh, it could be a husband or a wife. Someone who would push them hard and push them to where they were going to go. Uh, humility is something I think that we'll try to practice, but I think the higher you move up the kind of the, the success chain, the more difficult that becomes. But the one thing that all of them relied on and continue to rely on is a network. Um, right now, um, Doc, what you've done is you've created this network. Um, I, I don't know the human dynamics of this network, whether you all know each other, whether you're part of some weird cult that I haven't been invited to, whatever, what, yet, whatever the situation is. But if you're not leveraging off each other's network right now, when we finish this conversation, you're missing a trick. I think that's, that, that's really important, because all of these people are arch networkers. That's the one thing. There's a counterpoint to that, though, Jacques, which is quite interesting. And back to my dear friend Cheryl Corollas, every year on her birthday, um, she detoxifies her life by getting rid of the people, not literally, but figuratively, <laughs> by getting rid of the people who add no more value to what she is doing. She goes to her cell phone, and every single person who has been negative, who has not added that value of optimism, of hope, of assistance to her, she deletes, she never contacts them again. Sometimes she deletes one person, Sometimes she deletes 50 people. Once she's done that, she opens a bottle of very expensive champagne at 8 o'clock in the morning and uh, proceeds to enjoy her birthday in that respect. So I think the networking is important. The other thing that I would urge you to do, and it's something that I've learned from all of them, and it's how you pay it forward or pass it on. Those people that are successful understand they have an obligation to help others, whether it's mentorship. But one thing that I've always said to my daughters who are now in their 20s, I've always said to them, that it was re-echoed to me by one of the people in this book, you can show people the door, 
don't open them for them. There's the door, okay, because there's so many doors that are available to people these days, and there's a lot of confusion about which door to choose. Show people the door, but they've got to kick the door open themselves. And that was another message that came across very strongly in this book. I probably haven't answered the question, but uh, yeah, some were humble and some had big egos. There you go. <laughs> I love it. Let me, uh, before, we, before we close, uh, we'll ask the audience for, for a few closing questions for you. It was interesting when you sort of spoke about taking up, because uh, on Thursday I interviewed Maggie Wiener on Hobo, mm. um, Ministry of Crime, and, and then they take out a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> was, 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 was anybody here for the Maggie Wiener interview? Yes, I, 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 I just well. have not had the, I've got the book at home. And I, I, I'm inordinately fond of Mandy, who I know very, very well. I just haven't brought myself to read it yet. It's just too bleak. Please, <laughs> I folks, thought that would suit you. <laughs> but please, folks, if I can punt another author's book, uh, it is one of the most important books in that nexus oh. between crime, law enforcement, and corruption, and politics in this country. Do yourself a favor, we're starting to approach the summer. That's the book that you want to buy when you're enjoying yourself on behind each of them. And you, and you, and you can even, um, I know he's, he's passed away for a while, or taken out for a while, or break. Uh, because that was her first book that it made her, her famous. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a, the Ministry of Crime is a sequel to to the, the King Kebble saga, which was a fascinating one. But, but Jeremy, I mean, back to your book, because that's what, that's what you like as well. Back to me. Back, yes. back to you, Jeremy. Um, you know, the Business Book Club is all about you don't know what you don't know. Um, and that's why we get together, because it's about sharing knowledge. It's about getting that one thing, that one thought, or just having different ideas. Because the reality is we all, you know, 80% of what we think is the stuff we, we came up with yesterday. So if you're not going to come up with new stuff, where are you going to get new stuff? So you're going to listen to Jeremy on TV and to his shows and the, the airplane crashes or, or whatever he, uh, he shares with us. Um, or otherwise, just buy, buy books. And you know, this is a good book to buy and to get new ideas and stuff about. But the ideas are, are a prelude to habits. And I mean, this is really what, what this book is. I mean, there's a lot of sharing of what these guys do. And you could cherry pick what, okay, so, Adrian Gore gets up at 4 o'clock, nah, it's not for me, but I like the Shell Coronas thing, uh, you know, going through, through my phone and deleting a few people, taking them out. What was the habits of individuals in the um, that you looked at that you went like, oh my goodness, those are, those are really powerful habits that maybe I could apply, you know, in, in my life as, uh, as Jeremy Banks. Or were they not? Sean, I, 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 I literally, I, I, again, I, I, I literally have no idea how to answer that question because I, I don't think I explored that avenue particularly. What I can say uh, about all of these people is that they are time planners. They have an understanding of the value of the workday. And most of us, I think, tend to fritter a lot of time away. Adrian, for instance, works in 20-minute increments. Cheryl gets up early in the morning and 
uh, you know, plans her day so she has a clear idea of what she is going to do. Someone like uh, Jalu Mabuza um, is a person who is, whose life is well planned for him by his own mission. So the only concurrent kind of habit that I can draw from all of these people is that they have a resolute desire to accomplish something or numerous things in the course of the day, whether it be Monday to Friday or a Saturday or Sunday. They are driven by an accomplishment. And that to me is the one thing that was the habit. The way in which they do it is different. You know, some people get up later and work late into the night. Um, other people get up at four o'clock in the morning. Other people, it's important for them to go swim 20 lengths in their swimming pool, whatever the case is. Someone like Mark Lamberti has got to get through X number of business uh, media titles you know, before he turns his attention to his diary for the day. But the habits they've got are chasing tangible accomplishment at the end of the day. I actually thought that was quite a good answer. <laughs> You're very good at avoiding the question. Um, any, any last questions from the audience before we wrap up the evening? Anyone for a last question? Yes. I'm curious to know whether the need to be politically correct has caused you a lot of internal conflict. And whether I heard the term today, radical candor. Radical? Candor. candor. I haven't heard it yet. To just be a bit more straight and less politically correct. Don't you think that's a good reason? that you think I'm politically correct because my, <laughs> if that's your perception of me, so be it. Um, my, my job every single day without fear or favor is to ask tough questions of people as respectfully as I possibly can, however, um, however I feel about them. Um, and if that's a definition of being politically correct, well, so be it. Um, I think that we live in a hyper-aggressive, uh, and very tenuous society at the moment where sometimes political correctness can be uh, very annoying to people of a certain uh, class or human or race. On the other side, some of the things can be very insulting to the mirror opposite of those people. So I don't think we've worked out the political correctness quotient in this country. All I would say to you though is that I think it's incumbent upon all of us, particularly those of us who are privileged enough uh, to have had a nice meal tonight, a glass of wine, uh, and sit in a nice environment like this, to be a little bit more empathetic and understanding of the vast majority of people in this country. And sometimes, a little bit of political correctness serves that purpose. Call me politically correct, I'm happy to do that. But my job, okay, uh, is to treat people, uh, you know, I, I'm an equal opportunity insulter of all people. Uh, that is my job. My job is to winkle the truth out of people. And I've learned the older I get um, is to try and do it with a certain sense of decorum and a certain sense of dignity and not to be the kind of shouty, aggressive, in your face kind of interviewer 
that we have seen in the past. And you know, it's a technique that some people will use. Um, it's easier, I think, to trap people by being nice to them. Very well, thank you very much for sharing your truth with us. Thank you for uh, sharing sharing with us your book and your time for tonight. I know that uh, you know while while we were sitting and waiting for everybody to come, Jeremy is busy checking the news, and uh, he's going to he's going to go back to the newsroom and, and make sure that there's no spelling errors. Uh, <laughs> Spelled tariff incorrectly today, twice. Um, but but Jeremy, thank you thank, thank you so you much for your time. Please. Thank you for uh, having us. Thank you for being with us. Can we please have a big round of applause? Please come along and join us at the next business program. Thank you. Thank you very much.